You're listening to the Complete Performance Systems Podcast, where we cover how to get really strong, increase sports performance, training, nutrition, rehab, and lifestyle. Hey guys, welcome to the Complete Performance Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Hackamacki, and I have here with me on episode two, Kyle Dobbs. Kyle has a vast experience in everything training, athletics, and business. He covers his thoughts on certification and principles, how to know when to apply certain principles, how to create an autonomic shift to a parasympathetic state, what warming up should look like, how to select exercises for sport and plane of movement, specificity versus variability in training and how to apply these to performance and health, addressing athlete biases, the role of the ribcage and pelvis in anatomical movement, and the diaphragm in breathing. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Kyle's a great genuine guy with a ton of knowledge to share. All right, Kyle, do you want to start off by telling the listeners and viewers kind of who you are in your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of give you the short version but I'm 36 I've been in the industry for just about 15 years I I went to school for pre-med and I was a a two-sport athlete as well Um, realized I didn't want to go into medical school about my junior year and I had a few injuries in sports and kind of in that classic example of a of a you know quote-unquote failed athlete that you know kind of found training through the rehabilitation process and really became fat, you know, kind of fascinated with that aspect of things and, and really grew to love training myself. Right. And through that process, I graduated, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I went ahead and got my CSCS right out of school after my undergrad and floated around for a little bit. Um, at the time, my girlfriend now wife was also getting ready to graduate and she, worked, she was a fashion major and had interned in New York for all through school, all through the summers, and got a job offer straight out of school. And we just kind of took our chances and moved up there without really having a plan. Um, she had a, a job early on, and it wasn't even enough to pay our rent, you know, once we got up there. So I started, um, started training. I walked into a gym on our second or third day there and worked out, and the manager spoke to me. And found out I was certified through conversations and I interviewed the next day. And that's kind of the, the story of how I launched my career. I, I trained exclusively for about six years um, at a very high level. I was national trainer of the year for the company I worked for and five multiple times. So I was training a ton of sessions. I was making really good money. Um, I was incredibly burnt out by just the hours and the engagement of everything. And, my passions at that point had kind of shifted. I also had my first child on the way. Um, and I went into leadership and development. And I, I was an assistant manager for about six months and then went on to manage my own facility. Um, managed a single facility within that company for a few years, the largest one in the company. I was manager of the year for the company for, for a year. And then went into uh, multi-club management. and. Did that for a little bit and, and kind of got frustrated 
um, with the lack of opportunity and the lack of autonomy in the politics that were kind of involved within the, the more you know organizational structure of, of that company. And I went into the private sector, um, started working as the training director for this, um, this gym in New York at the time called Peak Performance, which was at that point one of the, the most well-known personal training facilities in America and been on you know, men's health covers and, and all this stuff. And um, I kind of went in there to help them ideally transition from a smaller space into a larger organization. They were going to scale up uh, in a pretty major way in Manhattan and then open up other markets throughout the US and Europe. And I was going to help them with that process. Um, the company itself dissolved after, after about six months of me being there, just a lot of kind of uh, bad luck with construction and relationships with investors and, and things of that nature. Um, and, and it just kind of fizzled out, you know, and the good part about that was, you know, I met some really great professionals while I was there. That's where I met like, people like Pat Davidson and the resilient team and, a bunch of really quality trainers, probably the best staff that I've ever you know, worked with or seen at that point, um, and still. Um, but we all went our separate ways, so made a bunch of friends, and then we kind of scattered. And then I went on to work for another company based out of New York, um, working in residential and corporate fitness again. Um, was a director for their services and, and was overseeing about 70 total locations and, and multiple markets. and just over a thousand or so employees um, was very had a lot of fun with that and, and kind of helped you know got to be on the other side of things and working on policy and building out policies and procedures and uh, revenue you know uh, pricing structures revenue structures etc profitability margins uh, development systems internships um, working with third-party vendors like you know, Omega Wave and Kaiser and some others inside Tracker, and just really got a lot of great experiences that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and from that point on, uh, after about two years, uh, I now had two kids. We were living out in the suburbs in Jersey and just kind of decided it was time to move home to the Midwest. Um, my lifestyle wasn't really what I wanted to do with the commute, the job stress, everything else. My health wasn't great. Um, I was definitely just kind of one of your typical New Yorker at that point. I was everything that I was trying to get my clients out of. I was super hypertonic, hyperactive from an autonomic standpoint. Um, and just definitely noticing the signs of just adrenal disruption and, and all that stuff. And made the move. Um, and then I've been here in St. Louis for about two years and I own my own business. Um, I consult with facilities on trainer development systems, educational pathways, leadership. And then I also work one-on-one um, -on -one mentorship with trainers and business owners. And then I just launched, I'm kind of in the middle of the first iteration of a group mentorship program where I've got 50 people in that. Um, and now I'm just also in the process of launching another revenue stream, which is a larger scale training operation from a remote standpoint. Um, that's me in a nutshell. So. That's awesome. It sounds like you just had a broad uh, range of experiences. Yeah, I, I feel like I've kind of worked in, in just about every part of the field. Um, I've definitely done 
the grind life when, you know, when I was younger, um, I had a three thirty alarm clock <laughs> for Monday through Friday for, for about six years. I worked seven days a week for about four of those years. Um, I definitely went through that process and I think it is an important process to go through um, just for contrast, if anything else. Um, but I've also done a lot of higher level stuff, a lot of upper level management, managing managers, uh, that sort of thing, overseeing different markets, launching new facilities. Um, so, so a lot of administrative and operational and organizational things as well. And over the years, I've definitely gotten more passionate about developing trainers um, I still love training clients, but, but I really love working with trainers and I love working with people who are passionate to help other people in the same way that I've had the experience to do so over the years. Awesome. I, I came across you through your Instagram, uh, compound performance and on there, you kind of have alphabet soup behind your name, which, uh, kind of goes along with, um, your experience that you mentioned. So with all these certifications and courses you've been through, uh, do you want to kind of give a general overview of everything that you've gone through? And Yeah, I mean, it's funny. And, and I'll kind of be the first to tell you that I, I don't think all those acronyms even matter, you know, that much. I list them because trainers recognize them and it gives context to my experience and, and some of the systems that I've, I've worked within. But, but I think there's also a lot of other factors that go into being successful in the field. Um, Regardless, um, I came out of school and I got my CSCS right away just because that was, you know, the thing to do, especially as a former athlete. And, and I almost immediately found myself thrust into the middle of Manhattan training exactly zero athletes. Uh, so that wasn't really applicable to the demographic I was working within or the market I was working within or the facility that I was working within. So I had to go and kind of, you know, find out what that, that client base valued, what they needed, what I could optimize from a training perspective within. Um, so I started looking at things like FMS and SFMA. Those were, those were big back then. Obviously there's still bigger names now. I've done DNS um, and, and dabbled in that stuff. I've done RKC and SFG, all certifications over the years. I've taken a lot of just modality-based certifications that you know you tend to take within the corporate gym world, um, and then you know more recently uh, I've taken and, and kind of worked within like the FRC and Ken Stretch realm a little bit, and then probably more so even within the the PRI realm has kind of been my main focus over the last few years. Um, <clears throat> I got exposed to that when I went to peak. At that point, Pat was was pretty big with them and doing a lot of education with them as well. And when I went in, I, I kind of sat down in my first, you know, trainer education meeting in the back and was blown away, you know, by just the things they were talking about, not just Pat, but also the trainers on staff and had no idea, you know, from, from an acronym standpoint or a jargon standpoint, just at all what they were talking about, even conceptually, and was completely lost. And it was one of those, uh, you know, kind of feelings where I was, you know, instantly terrified but liberated at the same time. And I figured out what it was, and I and I went and I took the, you know, kind of the three foundation courses via home study, all in the first four months that I was there, and just crammed them and just tried to pick up on as much as I could. But the the great thing about being in that facility is I also got to see the 
the actual application of the concepts every day. I got to work with other trainers. I got to work with clients. I got to sit in on development. I got to be exposed to it myself as a client. And, and I think that's a huge thing, right? Because the, the thing with any of those education processes and any of those belief systems as a whole is you kind of go to a two to three day seminar and you know, you learn, you learn the system itself. You learn the beliefs, you learn some of the interventions in a vacuum, right? In a controlled environment with a bunch of other trainers or physical therapists, depending on where you're at. And, and then you just kind of go on your way. Right. And then you go into your actual gym space and with your actual training population, which, you know, typically when you're working with gym pop, you've got people who want to lose weight or get stronger or look better. Right. And from a PR perspective, especially it's like, you've got that person laying down on the ground, breathing in the balloons and doing, you know, respiration resets. Right. And that's accomplishing none of the things that they want to do from a goal selection standpoint. And that's, that's a problem, right? That's a huge flaw in the education industry as a whole is, they don't teach you how to critically think and then, you know, take that back to your gym environment, look at the context of your client base and go through application that's appropriate for their task and, and the things that they actually value. And I think that's, you know, obviously that's a problem with education in general. Um, our schooling system kind of leans that way as well. Like critical thinking is actually kind of, you know, frowned upon rather than congratulated and celebrated. And, but at the end of the day, when, when you're working in fitness and you're working with dynamic individuals within an a even more dynamic environment, there's so many variables, right? And, and you're not sitting there in, a, in an educational seminar working with other trainers with good body awareness in a controlled environment with the expectation that these are the drills that you're going to do. And you have to be able to think your way out of that, you know, depending on where you are. It's the same thing if you're working with collegiate athletes, right? Trying to get a, a you know, a defensive tackle into a 90-90, you know, supine position with a reach and teaching them respiration strategies might not really vibe with them. It might not be what they, they envision when they're going to the weight room, right? So we have to find ways to get creative on, on how to teach these things within the context that the client is actually expecting it in. Uh, and, and that's where I think, you know, good trainers can go to great right? If they can learn how to do those things. That was kind of a tangent, but. Uh, oh, that's all right. Yeah. Uh, what I really took away is applications, basically everything. You can have all the certifications behind your name if you, that you want, but if you can't apply it, you're kind of meaningless. So how do you go about applying these and knowing when to apply these certain principles to your certain clients? You really have to look, you know, I look at two things, right? So I look at I look at their actual goal. So I look at the task itself and the qualities that are needed to perform that task um, from a competency, capacity, and performance base, you know, spectrum. <clears throat> and then I look at their actual assessments, right? And I look at what their physical ability amounts to. And at that point, you know, I can do one of two things, right? I can take, I can look at those abilities and I can drive strengths until I start, you know, and I, until I start hitting a, a diminishing return or I can start raising the floor depending on what the athlete is and, and start working on the qualities that they might be missing that the task demands. And that's going to be individual to client. And I, I use that a lot and kind of determine that a lot about, you know, from a behavioral analysis that I will typically do as well. Um, 
but when I'm implementing different tools, right? Because I've got clients who use a PRI drill and FRC drill and maybe something else, dynamic movement or, or whatever. And a lot of it has to do with understanding the, the client's actual kinesthetic awareness and understanding what they can replicate, right? So I look at their preferences, I look at their abilities, and I look at what they can do on their own. And if they're having trouble learning something, I'm probably not going to do it, right? Because especially when we start looking at any of these prep strategies, we're looking at very short-term windows, right? They're all short-term adaptation because they're very low stress. And if, they're, if those athletes or those clients aren't doing these things every day, usually multiple times a day, they're not going to get a tissue adaptation or a neural motor learning adaptation from them. So I'll typically find things that the client can do really well. Um, so complexity is usually super low. And I'll find something they actually enjoy doing, right? If I can find both of those things, I know that the intention behind the drills is pretty high. And if I've got a client who enjoys what they're doing, has a high level of intention and a high level of competency, I can make a pretty good estimation to that point that that drill is going to be effective. And at that point, I'm just gonna keep hammering that drill until I don't have to do it anymore. Um, again, when we start looking at prep work, we start looking at corrective exercise in general, whatever, whatever that means, right, air quotes. Um, the whole point of it is to not have to do it anymore. And I think a lot of trainers also miss the mark on that, right? You, you should not be doing resets for the rest of your life. You should not be foam rolling your hip flexors and calves and lats for the rest of your life. You shouldn't be doing the same cars, pails, and rails for the rest of your life. Like at some point, these things should be corrected and we should be going into progressive training, looking at actual physical adaptations and tissue changes. Um, and and I, I think that's, that's really the big overlay, right? Is I, I really try to look at low hanging fruit and bang for buck. And most of the clients that I work with, their prep amounts to no more than three drills. If I'm doing more than three, I'm probably not picking great exercise selections at that point, or they might need another professional, right? If, if I've got somebody doing 40 minutes of prep, um, they either need a DPT or I completely pick the wrong exercise selection for their actual programming. They should not need that much, right? It's not scaled correctly. So long answer, uh, or you know, long answer short, um, it has a lot to do with their ability to assimilate the information um, and the intention that they will put into replicating it over time. So with the athlete assimilating the information, how do you go about athlete biases and warming up, whether it's with the foam roller, PRI, FRC, RPR, just general stretching? And how do you uh, make sure the client's not using these as a safety blanket? Well, I think first we have to determine if them using them as a safety blanket is even a bad thing, right? And and, and I think that's, that's a big question, right? And when you, whenever you're dealing with um, any individual, right, especially um, someone who trains at a fairly high level, they'll come in with habits, right? As human beings, we create habits. Um, that's kind of how we get from one place to another usually. And it, if I have somebody who, for instance, is, you know, been working with strength coaches or trainers for the last few years that had them foam rolling and stretching before they train, if that's been the first 10 minutes or so of their training sessions for the last four or five years, and I take that away, 
is the is the actual stress response that they're incurring from that uh, diminishing the results of what I'm going to try to replace it with, right? And you know, so I it, it's always contextual and it's always going to be driven by by the athlete, but I still have clients that do the foam roll, right? Even though I don't necessarily believe in foam rolling as it's advertised, right? You know, we're not changing fascia, we're not changing tissue, but if we are getting a, a Golgi tendon response and we're, we're dampening the, the neural drive of tissue, you know, that might be beneficial, right? And what I'm looking at there is if, if the person does their intervention and they stand up and they're moving well, I don't necessarily need to change it, right? Especially if they're not a pain management client, especially if they're not, they don't have, you know, major contraindications. Um, I have a lot of people that will do different prep. And what I'm looking at at the end of the day is I'm really looking at outcomes. And sometimes somebody has a contraindication um, or a strategy that is maybe not optimal that I do need to change over time. Um, like a respiration strategy of sorts. I'll start working that stuff in, but I'm not necessarily going to take the other stuff away first. It's not a replacement. It's an addition and then a subtraction later on once I gain trust with that person. Um, so I'm never going to immediately take something away because it, it might be the safety blanket. But I also know that when I'm looking at what prep is intended to do, right, we're looking at a parasympathetic shift. Um, more often than not, to decrease hypertonicity of muscle tissue. And with that, you know, we can do that a lot of different ways, right? And if you're looking at that as an acute stress response, right, and somebody's sympathetic or, or hyperactive from an autonomic standpoint, I'm just trying to get them to dampen that reaction. And I can do that through physiological means, but I can also do that through psychological means, right? And if the habits that they formed over the years through foam rolling or FRC work or PRI or whatever, stretching even, um, gives them the decreases their threat response as they come into a training facility and allows them to dampen their autonomic system and their sympathetic tone to allow for better movement capacity as we start getting into training. That's valuable to me. Right. And if, and if I change that and I change that threat response or increase it and, and I get somebody who's now more hypertonic and has less movement competency simply because I don't believe in foam rolling. Well, that's an ego issue. Right. I'm not looking at the client's best interest at that point. So um, I don't necessarily replace things right away. I do have preferences, but I also try to be objective to the client's preferences. Right. And. Um, if I'm going to add a strategy that I really deem as being beneficial, I'm going to add it in and then slowly take the other thing away as I build trust. It's not going to be a one for one switch. Um, you know, so in, and how often or how fast that happens is very individualized. You have to be able to communicate with that athlete and listen to them and get feedback throughout that process as well. You mentioned the autonomic, um, autonomic shift uh, to a parasympathetic state uh, prior to training. Can you address the rib cage and pelvis and how that affects anatomical movement as well as uh, the role of the diaphragm and pelvic floor on the control of those and kind of the respiration factor with those? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to get too deep into the weeds with it <laughs> because I feel like that's pretty easy to do. Uh, but most 
of the people that we see, um, especially athletes, but also people in the gen pop, the, the general population, um, are typically fairly extended. You know, we kind of tend to see a lot of the same pattern um, walking around and in front of us within any training facility all day. And, you, and you've got people who are kind of that classic um, anteriorly pelvic tilt, right? Anterior tilted pelvis. And that's causing a extended thoracic, you know, uh, lumbar and thoracic spine. And their rib cage is usually kind of orientated over their forefeet. And because of that, you've got somebody who is very concentrically oriented. You've got somebody who is stuck in what, you know, PRI would call an exhalation pattern. And those are the people that we want to get back to neutral uh, and, and kind of reorientate. You know, so the first thing that we typically do is we try to look at sagittal competency. And all sagittal competency is, in its most basic form, is finding, help, well, helping that person integrate their hamstrings and their rectus abdominis into static positions to reorientate the pelvis and the ribcage. So the hamstrings will pull the pelvis down posteriorly and the abdominal complex will pull the pelvis up anteriorly and the ribcage back down posteriorly. So it'll internally rotate and depress it. Um, and that will create a better alignment. It will shift the person's center of mass, their rib cage, back over the midfoot to heel. And now we've got that person reorientated in space. Now that they're in that position, we can get better diaphragmic and better pelvic floor function as well. That'll allow the sacrum to counter-mutate. That'll allow the pelvic outlet to close. And it allows the, the actual diaphragm itself to, to ascend and descend properly, right? So, now we've also created a more efficient and more effective pressure management system within that person's quote unquote core, right? Which is essentially looking at their rib cage to their knees, you know, more often than not. Um, and, and that's really what it comes down to, you know, and I think um, after that we can get into more triplanar stuff that, you know, that position allows for better movement variability as a whole. Um, because it allows your femurs to also internally and externally rotate within a, a, a more optimal capacity and it allows your scapulas to protract and retract more efficiently as well or along the, the, the actual gleno, the glenoid and the, the back of the rib cage. So not only are you increasing movement capacity, but you're also increasing that person's ability to breathe into their posterior mediastinum, which is a big concept again in the PRI world, right? We want to be able to breathe into the posterior rib cage, right? And when you're fully extended and, you're, and your, your shoulder blades are kind of locked back in that retracted position, you've now constricted your rib cage and you're not able to get full lung capacity. And if you're constantly in that exhalation pattern, you're usually also sympathetically orientated from an autonomic standpoint. So we're looking at you know, several factors at that point to decrease sympathetic tone and increased parasympathetic tone, respiration being a big one, but also driving positions that will allow the right muscles to function within orientation. So regarding uh, abdominal pressure and positioning your pelvis with your hamstrings and your abs, how does this come into play when, say, you have a power lifter, just anyone in the gym for this point, throwing on a belt? 
Well, I mean, all a belt is, is an external brace, right? You're just mm-hmm. adding a constraint to the picture. And if somebody's going to be lifting the amount of weight that a power lifter lifts, a belt's probably not a bad idea, right? Does that mean they should be training exclusively with a belt with all loads? No, right? And I think, again, it's, it's always going to be context. And, I, you know, I work with several power lifters, and, and they all work belts, when they get to a certain RPE or a certain percentage of their comp lifts. And, and that's okay because that's a safety mechanism. It allows them to, to have a constraint and something to push against. It's not necessarily the cues that we would be looking for from a postural standpoint, but this also isn't a postural exercise, right? It's two different tasks for very different functions. Um, you probably shouldn't be using the same movement strategies to lift as much weight as possible as you do walking up and down the street, right? It's, it's, you shouldn't have the same energy system usage. You shouldn't have the same motor recruitment. You shouldn't have the same movement patterns, right? So I think people kind of get lost on the fact that it's two different tasks, right? You're going to have different postures, you're going to have different orientations. Um, a belt is a tool that they will use when they lift, you know, super heavy and that, that's fine. You know, we're still going to do a lot of training volume without it. Um, the power lifters that I typically work with, we also use a lot of more low level sensorial exercises within their accessory work and their prep work, um, working on a more neutral posture that again, it, it, it's not necessarily going to be anything we integrate into their complex, but it does allow them to have a different strategy within a different environment, right? So they step off the platform, they step out from under the weight, and maybe we can get into more of a neutral orientation as they're walking around the entire rest of the day, right? And we can make them more comfortable there. Um, but the actual posture and, and orientation and position that you would be utilizing within those big lifts, which are you know one rep max output, is a very concentrically orientated uh, alignment, right? They're usually leveraging extension. Um, they're doing kind of a lot of the things that we're trying to take away from just a, a everyday posture standpoint, but it's a completely different task for a different purpose, right? And, and that's okay, right? It, performance is not health, right? And you can talk about the performance health continuum, but they're at the opposite end. And, and that's the very extreme of performance. Um, I, I think if you, you know, you go to any powerlifting meet or powerlifting gym and you poll all the lifters within that facility on whether or not they think their sport is a healthy choice, I don't think any of them would say that it is, right? They, they know the risk. They know what they're doing isn't necessarily the best thing for their bodies. And they know that the injury risk is extremely high. They do it anyway because they love it. And I think we also have to respect that decision, especially when it's an educated decision. So powerlifting is obviously very specific and without spread, spreading yourself too high on the variability side, how do you take specific athletes for their sport and still make sure they're getting the aspects of performance for general health without taking away from the performance on the far sides of the performance continuum? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really looking again at, you know, whenever I look at any client, you know, I kind of have three buckets um, or qualities that I look at based on their task, right? So I've got movement and mobility. I've got aerobic 
uh, systems, and I've got strength uh, or musculoskeletal systems. And within those three buckets, I now have three different levels of training that I can work with those people within, right? So I've got competency, which is just motor learning. It's kind of aligned with that minimum effective dose principle for a lot of people. I've got capacity, which I would qualify as repeated effort. Um, and then I've got performance, which would be output or, you know, uh, low range effort, right? So you're looking at your, your three rep maxes and under, or your people who are running like hundreds and two hundreds in the track world. Um, and at that point, you know, when I look at that individual, I look at their task, I see what it requires, right? In, in the case of powerlifting, I need competency in movement. I need competency in aerobic, you know, systems. And I need capacity and performance, depending on what part of their season they're in, over the course of the training phase or training block for strength and musculoskeletal system, right? So I'm going to train those qualities within those ranges. If I'm working with a uh, marathon runner or competitive runner in general, distance runner, it's going to be exactly the opposite, right? Or I'm going to be looking at movement from a capacity standpoint um, because I need to make sure that they can continue a gait cycle for hundreds to thousands of reps every step, right? I'm going to be looking at the aerobic system at a capacity standpoint especially for a distance runner, because I want repeatable effort. So it's going to be true aerobic, not anaerobic. And I'm going to be going to be looking at musculoskeletal system and strength at a competency standpoint. I'm going to be looking at gain, giving them just enough strength to offset overuse patterns and potential injury risk. If I'm looking at a field sport athlete that has to move dynamically, like your basketball players, your soccer players, um, hockey players, things of that nature, they're going to be capacity in a lot of different places, right? So, for them, like they're, they're kind of going to be the true kings and queens of variability where they need to have, you know, a pretty robust movement and mobility system because they're doing triplanar movement. They're unilateral, bilateral, extended, flex, concentric, eccentric, accelerating, decelerating. They need pretty high aerobic ability, both capacity and performance-based, aerobic and anaerobic, and they need to be able to, you know, kind of fluctuate in between those. Uh, whenever they need to. And they need to have, again, strength from a competency standpoint, right? Strength and especially muscle tissue for a lot of those sports is going to have a diminishing return at some point, right? And extra body weight isn't always beneficial for them. So again, looking at the athlete and their demands, if I've got, you know, a 6'10 player that weighs 190 pounds, we need to put some weight on that's cool. We can do that. But if I've got somebody who's already at a pretty good body weight, say like a six, four guy who's floating around 195, 200, I don't need to put extra mass on him. I'm probably only going to make him more unathletic at that point. Right. So that's going to fluctuate very the individual, but that's really, those are the, you know, the six factors I'm looking at, right. What those buckets are. So movement and mobility, aerobic, and then strength systems. And then I've got competency, capacity, and performance-based training application. You mentioned the bilateral versus contralateral and triplanar type athletes. How does your recommendation for exercise and movements vary between these varying populations? Yeah, again, I'm gonna look at sport, right? 
right? You know, if I've got a power lifter, right, they are a bilateral sagittal support. They are the sagittal monsters. Um, a lot of their training is going to come on two legs. Um, even their prep work from a sagittal competency, competency standpoint is still going to be a lot of bilateral work, right? I'm just, I'm usually going to narrow their stance so that we can get more femoral IR and more uh, pelvic posterior tilt and, and neutral positioning. Um, again, more, more sacral counter-nutation, more knees over toes, give them different options because they typically both deadlift and uh, squat and very wide externally rotating and abducted uh, stances. Um, but I might also start working in a little bit of unilateral work from a sensorial standpoint within their prep phases. Um, again, it's going to depend on the athlete. It's going to depend on what their needs are. Um, if I really need to drive, if I've got somebody who, you know, in, in your PRI terms is a bilateral asymmetrical pattern, so they're like a BC or an AIC, I'm going to drive a little bit more unilateral work because they have an asymmetry that probably needs to be corrected at some point to participate in their bilateral sport. Um, if I've got someone who is more of a... <sighs> field sport multi-directional athlete um, bilateral strength training is going to be good for just giving them a general strength base but the carryover to their actual sport probably isn't going to be that high um, so we're going to be doing a lot of unilateral work um, a lot of reactive work rsi type stuff um, and then playing their sport as much as possible but the uh the bilateral work itself you know a squat no matter how we try to position it, does not replicate a jump, right? When, when you jump, you're on your forefeet, your knees are forward, your butt's not back, and your torso is typically pretty vertical. You've got a big arm swing helping you through that process as well. That's very different than how we usually teach a barbell back squat, weight in the heels, butt back, forward torso. There might not be that much actual carryover to the jumping motion, right? Um, especially when we start looking at, you know, the, the actual kind of uh, eccentric deceleration or, and, and concentric propulsion phases of jumping and running, right? Um, typically, when we're doing our bilateral lifts, because they are bilateral and because we are usually coaching people out of this, they're not getting the, the foot pronation, the internal rotation of the tibias and the femurs, and they're not getting the on the concentric end because of their, you know, because they're already at concentric orientation, they're not then getting the supination, the external rotation and the, ad, and the abduction of the femurs uh, as they're extending, right? So if you're already stuck in a concentrically oriented extension pattern, you've got nowhere to go, right? You know, and I think that's where we miss the torque aspect of a lot of athletic movements when we try to get people to be better lifters instead of better athletes. You mentioned training your sport for optimal performance um, and getting stuck in certain patterns. Do you recommend variation outside of sport or outside of their typical plane of movement, such as like the sagittal monster and powerlifting, uh, just for like general health and addressing weak points? Yeah, and I mean, that's why, you know, usually again, within their prep work, within their accessory work, like we will work on again, finding sagittal competency, we're going to find hamstrings, we're going to find adductors, we're going to find obliques, we're going to find rectus abdominis, we're going to find some serratus, 
We're going to get the rib cage retracted back over the pelvis um, because that's where I want them to be pretty much whenever they're not training, right? Because it, it, again, there should be a shift, right? When you're in the gym, we're training performance. When you're out of the gym, we should be looking at more health related factors like you're saying. And I want somebody to be in a position where they can breathe efficiently, where they can move efficiently, where they can integrate the right muscles through better positioning for walking, sitting, standing, playing with their kids, if they're parents, whatever it may be. I want them to be able to do those things, right? So that's what I mean when I talk about giving them kind of, you know, variation and variability within their prep work is I want them, you know, from a sensorial standpoint, from a motor standpoint, to know that their body has different options other than just extension and concentric orientation. Um, because those are the, the men and women that are usually kind of walking around in chronic pain because they are stuck in that pattern, right? So I want you to be able to get out of that. I want it to be context driven. It's kind of like you walk into the gym, you get under a bar, the switch is flipped, and you, you pick the posture that's going to be the most appropriate for the task you're doing. But as soon as you walk out of the gym, we're back into our normal working and, you know, kind of lifestyle-based movement patterns. Being in constant pain is one thing, but how do you address uh, the personal bias of a weak chain and therefore avoiding movements in those areas and like, say, the gym? Uh, I, I typically have people lean into it, right? And, and again, in, in an intelligent fashion, but one of the things we get a lot of is, you know, like knee pain. And especially like patellar, you know, uh, tendiopathy and, and tendonitis and things of that nature. And it's usually with athletes that aren't able to get on their forefeet and get their toes over their, or their knees over their toes. Right. And traditionally over the last few, you know, the last 10 or so years that I've been in the industry, that's usually the person that we would cue. Okay. That's not a problem. Let's put your weight in your heels, get your butt back. That's how we're going to squat. That's how we're going to deadlift. But at the end of the day, if somebody's moving forward in space, like walking or running or whatever, your knees will be over your toes at some point, right? If, if you're running, you're, you're going to have, you know, uh, step patterns and foot strikes where your knees are positioned over your toes and you're going to be in positions where you need to be able to handle that and accommodate that stress. So I'll typically have people get in those positions and, and I start them with, you know, more low level drills. We do a lot of isometrics just getting used to stabilizing that pattern. It's also great for just overall tendon health. It's, it puts a good stress on the tissue itself to incur you know, adaptation over time and strengthening. Um, but it also gets motor recruitment um, for stabilizing those positions, right? And we, because of the nature of ISOs, we're usually putting people in what is traditionally thought of the hardest point of the position to stabilize, right, of the pattern, right? So somebody's in a 90-90 wall sit or 90-90 style split squat, those are typically where we lose stabilization within the dynamic nature of movement. And we'll start there, we'll work into static dynamics once they get pretty good at that, and then we'll work into more loaded exercises. So it's just a progression from that standpoint based on um, intensity and complexity. Awesome. 
One more question. It's kind of a loaded question here, but if you had to make one recommendation that athletes probably aren't doing in their training exercise program or just general lifestyle, what could it be? Sleeping. Um, just especially looking back on, you know, my athletic career, especially as a collegiate athlete, um, way too much, you know, extracurriculars, not enough sleep, you know, not enough taking care of myself. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're young, especially in, you know, in your upper teens and lower twenties, you can get away with a lot of things and you can still perform at a, you know, pretty good level, but you're never going to be able to optimize your performance either through competition or through training with poor lifestyle habits, you know, and I think it's very easy to slip into uh, eating poorly and, and sleeping poorly and, you know, just saying not necessarily regulating stress as a whole uh, very well when you're at that age, because especially as an athlete, you're training so much from an aesthetic standpoint, you probably look fine. Uh, so you're not worried about that. And that's kind of what drives most of our training anyway, when we really get down to it. Um, and then from confirmation bias standpoint, you know, you think you're performing well, because you don't know any better. You don't know what the upper limit of your performance actually is because you've never recovered well enough to actually get good performance in. Um, so we kind of also operate on that confirmation bias that it's like, oh, I mean, I'm doing pretty good, but you never actually know how good you could have been doing had you had better habits. I love it. That's all I had for you today as far as questions. Do you want to give yourself a shameless plug and tell us where we can find you? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me on uh, <clears throat> definitely Instagram on compound performance underscore. And then um, I don't do Facebook that much, but I am on there. I check it about once a week. There's too much other stuff going on, um, but I'm on Instagram quite a bit. I'm pretty active on there. Um, and then also my website, www.compoundperformance.com, um, has a, a good list of all the services that I provide. Like I said, I, I do quite a few things from a development and training perspective. So if you're ever interested in learning more about those, setting up a consultation, whatever, you can do all of that through the site or shoot me a DM on Instagram. Awesome. Thanks for being on, Kyle. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.